Welcome to part one of our series on user experience. In this episode, we're going to try and answer the question, what is UX? We're going to be looking at some of its history. So where did it come from? How did it evolve over time? And then we're also going to be looking at the future of UX. Where might things be going? So what exactly is UX design? Well, I suppose it really depends on who you ask because different people, they'll give you different definitions. In terms of definitions, there's probably nobody better to look at than the Nielsen-Norman Group. We're going to keep referring back to the Nielsen-Norman Group throughout this series. And they describe user experience as something that encompasses all aspects of the end user's interaction with a company. Not just the company, but its services and its products too. Now, they use the word company, and I don't know if I'd use that word as it might not always be a company. It could be an organization. It could be an educational institution. It could be something else, a medical provider, for example. They use the word company, so let's go with that. I think the important part to focus on, though, is that it's encompassing all aspects of the end user's interaction. Nielsen Norman believe that UX meets the exact needs of the customer without fuss, without bother. They believe that good user experience will provide simplicity and elegance that produce products that are a joy to own and a joy to use. They believe UX goes far beyond giving the customers what they say they want or providing some kind of a checklist of features. It's a seamless merging of the services of multiple disciplines. So this would include things like engineering, marketing, graphics, industrial design and UI interface design as well. And it's important to distinguish the total user experience from this user interface or this UI. So even though UI is a big part of UX design, UI is not UX. UX also includes usability, but UX isn't usability. I'm going to give you a little example of how something can maybe be usable and have a good UI, but at the same time provide a bad user experience. So this example is a website that allows someone to look up movies and find information about movies. So a user goes on, they put in some details and it will come back with some details about a movie. But what if I am somebody who's into very niche movies and the website is set up to just give information on kind of big budget mainstream movies? When I go to this website and I put in my criteria and I don't get a lot of results or maybe I get no results, that's a really bad user experience. Now, the user interface might be great and it might be very usable, But if I can't get what I need out of it, the user experience is bad. So it's important that we distinguish that these things are part of user experience, but they are not user experience. So this total user experience is a much broader concept. A brief history. So as long as people have been designing for other people, there has been in some way user experience design. So we're not going to go right back to the beginning of time. We have to start somewhere. So where I'm going to start, is in the 1900s with Taylorism. We're then going to touch on Toyota and the humanizing of the production system uh, from the 1940s. Then into the 1950s, we're going to look at Dreyfus and his book, Designing for People. Into the 1960s, then we're going to look at Disney and the role of joy. Into the 70s, Park and the design of personal computers. Then into the 90s, the kind of emergence of the UX professional. Um, And that's with Don Norman. And then into the 2000s with the birth of the iPhone. So first up is Taylorism. And Taylorism is named after its founder, Frederick Winslow Taylor. And it's a system of industrial management. And it seeks to improve productivity and efficiency through 
the really scientific study of work processes. His ideas were first implemented in the manufacturing industry, but the ideas quickly spread out into other industries as well. And what the system involves is essentially breaking down tasks into smaller, simpler actions, and then analysing each one and optimising each step to increase efficiency. This includes the use of time studies, so out with the stopwatch, measuring things, and motion studies to, to see the most efficient way for the, the the user to use the tool. So it's all about trying to find the the most efficient way to perform a task and the most efficient way to use a tool. So it's these specialized tools and machinery that started to come in after the Industrial Revolution. So all going towards improving speed and precision. Now, Taylor and Taylorism was very influential in shaping the modern industrialized world. So the world that we're living in today, I suppose. And a lot of the principles that Taylor came up with, they're still being used today in not just manufacturing, but things like healthcare and other fields. So it's all about measuring and optimizing and improving. There's a lot of critics to Taylorism. So they argue that Taylorism, it dehumanizes the worker. And it reduces the worker to just being a cog in a machine whose value is based on how productive you can be. There's flaws there. there. There's problems there. But despite the flaws, Taylorism, it's still a very significant part of industrial history. And the impact of it is still very much felt today. It's changed the way that people think about work, the way that people think about productivity. And it really pushed the industrial world to strive for greater efficiency and effectiveness, measuring everything along the way. So now we go to the 1940s and Toyota. So Taiichi Ono was an engineer and an industrial manager at Toyota. He's the person who developed the Toyota production system, which is also known as just-in-time production. What Taiichi Ono did was brought the importance of the worker to the fore. So his philosophy towards factory workers was one of empowerment and continuous improvement. He believed that factory workers were actually the best source of knowledge, the best source of ideas for improving the process. And he actually encouraged them to identify and solve problems on the factory floor. And he believed in the importance of clear communication and teamwork between management and workers. And he worked to create an environment in which everyone was encouraged to contribute. Everyone was encouraged to feed in to the production process and improve it. So we looked at Taylorism a little bit earlier, where it was all about timing the worker to try and squeeze the most out of them. With Taiichi Ono, it was more about rehumanizing the worker and leveraging their experience and their ingenuity to improve things. So understanding how they work and allowing them to continuously improve that process and iterate on their working process to make it better and better. Now let's fast forward a little bit to 1955 and Henry Dreyfus and his book Designing for People. So Henry Dreyfus, he was a very well-known, well-respected industrial designer and he authored this book Designing for People. What Dreyfus believed was that good design, it should be beautiful, it should be functional, but above everything, it should really prioritize the needs and the experiences of the people who actually use it. So this essentially being human-centered design. So through this book and his work, he championed this idea that design it should be a collaborative process. So it needs input from users, needs input from manufacturers, the people building the, the product, and also designers. So to create these products that they're aesthetically 
pleasing, but also easy to use and useful. So Dreyfus was very prolific. And so his designs include the Hoover vacuum cleaner, the Western Electric 500 telephone, and also the John Deere tractor. So the book, Designing for People, it became kind of a classic in the field of design. And it really influenced the way we think about design today. So his ideas and his work, they've really helped to shape um, the modern design industry. And they've played a really important role in making our everyday products more user-friendly and accessible. An interesting anecdote about Dreyfus, he was working on a theatre and this theatre wasn't doing very well. People weren't, weren't visiting and there was uh, a really beautiful lobby with this beautiful carpet and, you know, it was, it was absolutely gorgeous. But people weren't turning up. But through observation and just really getting uh, a sense of, of the user, like the user of this theatre, and what was stopping them from actually visiting this theatre. And he found that, well, people were actually coming from work and they might have dirty shoes. So they were actually worried about making the carpets dirty, which was stopping them from visiting the theatre. So having this really beautiful carpet, it might have made a more aesthetically pleasing place. But at the same time, it made the place less user friendly because people were afraid of making it dirty. So Henry Dreyfus definitely... Someone to look at, I'd recommend um, having a look through the book. What Dreyfus also did was really tried to figure out what the average person was. So what were the measurements of an average man or an average woman? There's this quote from Dreyfus. We begin with men and women and we end with them. We consider the potential user, habits, physical dimensions and psychological impulses. We also measure their purse, which is what I mean by ending with them. For we must conceive not only a satisfactory design, but also one that incorporates that indefinable appeal to assure purchase. The Greek philosopher Protagoras had a phrase for it. Man is the measure of all things. So now it's 1966 and we're going to talk about Disney and the role of joy. In a very early stage announcement of what would later become Disney World, Walt Disney described the project as always in the state of becoming, a place where the latest technology can be used to improve the lives of people. So his imaginative use of technology to bring people joy continues to inspire user experience designers. The legacy of this gives us Mickey's Ten Commandments. So these were created by Marty Sklar, who was the Imagineering president. And Mickey's Ten Commandments are as follows. So number one, know your audience. Essentially, don't bore people, don't talk down to them. Number two, wear your guests' shoes. Insist that designers, staff and your board members experience your facility as visitors as often as possible. And there's that great story about Walt Disney when he was imagining what it would be like to be a child in in Disney World, where he actually got down on his knees to see the world from the perspective of a small child. Number three, organise the flow of people and ideas. So use good storytelling techniques, tell good stories, not lectures. Lay out your exhibit with a clear logic. Number four, create a weenie. So a weenie helps to lead visitors from one area to another by creating these visual magnets and then giving visitors rewards for making the journey. Imagineers, they call these magnets weenies. And they're objects that are large enough to see from a distance and interesting enough to draw attention. Number five, communicate with visual literacy. So make good use of all the nonverbal ways of communication. So things like colour, shape, form, texture. Number six, avoid overload. 
Resist the temptation to tell too much or to have too many objects. Don't force people to swallow more than they can digest. Try to stimulate and provide guidance to those who want more. Number seven, tell one story at a time. If you have a lot of information, divide it into distinct, logical, organised stories. People can absorb and retain information more clearly if the path to the next concept is clear and logical. Number eight, avoid contradiction. Clear institutional identity helps give you the competitive edge. So the public needs to know who you are and what makes you different from other institutions that they may have already seen. Number nine, for every ounce of treatment, provide a ton of fun. How do you actually woo people from all the other temptations that they could be taking part in? So you give people plenty of opportunity to enjoy themselves by emphasising ways that let people participate in the experience and by making your environment rich and appealing to all the senses. Number 10, keep it up. So never underestimate the importance of cleanliness and routine maintenance. People expect to get a good show every single time and people will comment more on broken, dirty stuff and things that don't work. Now we're into the 1980s and Park or the Palo Alto Research Centre. It's a research and development company. It was founded in the 70s and it's a subsidiary of Xerox. Xerox who are known for photocopiers, right? And Xerox noticed that new computing technologies would eventually start eating into their business. Once screens become advanced enough and people can read and use them in their day-to-day lives, the need for photocopy years would start to diminish. So to future-proof themselves, Park invested in research and development. So Park is best known for its contributions to the development of personal computing. The graphical user interface, or GUI, being one of the most important developments by Park. The first UX designer. No history of UX would be complete without talking about Don Norman. Don Norman was the first user experience designer. He was an an electrical engineer and a cognitive scientist by trade. And he joined Apple to help with the research and design of its upcoming line of more human-centered products. And when he was asked what uh, he wanted his job title to be, he asked to be called a user experience architect. And this is the first time that user experience was used in a job title. Donald Norman had written a classic design book called The Design of Everyday Things, which is an absolutely brilliant book that I'd highly recommend. And the book champions design for usability and functionality rather than aesthetics. So this book is really influential right up until this day. And we're going to be hearing a little bit more about Donald Norman later on in this series. In 2007, the iPhone was launched, and this is a great landmark in terms of putting design on the radar of businesses. So seeing design as a real differentiator and a real way to add value. The iPhone, it was unveiled at Macworld in 2007, and it was described as being a leapfrog product. It promised to be far easier to use than any other smartphone on the market. And I had used a smartphone before the iPhone and it was an absolute nightmare to use. It had a stylus. It was absolutely terrible. The iPhone had changed the landscape of mobile devices forever and it really catapulted Apple into its current position as one of the world's most successful companies. It had this revolutionary touchscreen and it made physical keyboards that other phones had obsolete and it also didn't need a stylus to interact. Steve Jobs believed that the human hand already was equipped with, with, with stylus in, in the form of fingers. 
it really provided a user experience that was far superior to that of any other phone at the time. And then it led businesses to focus on user experience. And it could be argued now that Apple's emphasis on delivering great user experiences is what wins them market success. So what does the future hold for UX design? Well, it's likely to be shaped by a number of different trends, a number of different technologies. The big one, and probably the most obvious one, is artificial intelligence and machine learning. So we've all seen lots of examples of these recently becoming way more sophisticated. And they are expected to play an increasingly important role in the way that people interact with digital products and services. This will have massive implications for the design of user interfaces, as well as the way that information is presented and organized. As we've seen in the last number of years, voice interaction, as well as gesture interaction, they have become ubiquitous. So think of voice assistants, smart speakers, things like Siri, Alexa, Google Assistant, etc. And these are becoming really prevalent. This means that designers will have to think about how users will interact with digital products through medium like these. It's been talked about for a long, long time, virtual reality, as well as augmented reality. The technology has improved so much over the, the last number of years that these technologies, they're starting to actually become uh, really useful. The practical use of them has become more apparent. So we need to think about how we're going to create immersive experiences and how do we leverage the capabilities of these technologies So either bringing someone into a whole new environment through virtual reality or putting another layer of reality on top of our existing world with AR. Another big trend is accessibility. So as we become more aware of designing for everybody, it's going to be really important for UX designers to become more proficient in creating experiences that cater to lots of different needs and that are accessible to everyone. In the next episode, we're going to be talking about design ethics. So with the great power that we have as designers, that comes with a lot of responsibility. We've seen in recent years how this has been misused by large corporations and luckily things are being done about it. So I hope you can join me for the next podcast. Podcast.